Here tonight, would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 12 in the Old Testament? And we're going to the fourth part of this series, penal substitution. I don't like to use theological terms, but sometimes it becomes very important, very necessary, very practical and very important to do. And that's why I've called this series penal substitution. Penal substitution simply means that Jesus Christ died in my place and he suffered my punishment. We would all say that's the basic elementary uh, heart of the gospel. And yet, as we've already seen, there are many standing against this, teaching against it. And I want to tell you something is rising within the body of Christ to attack this simple basic of the gospel. And so we must defend it. We must stand. We must make sure that everyone understands it. We must explain it. We must teach it. We must go back and check the foundations again. Even though you say you know these things and we taught these things, we need to go back again. Because you know what? When I highlight the terrible, wicked attack that's against this truth, then it's going to stir your hearts to go, do I understand this? Can I defend it? Do I believe it? Can I expound it from the Word of God? And so I pray this will stir you to go right back to the Word of God, to check your foundations here tonight. Here in part four, as we turn to Exodus chapter 12, I've called this message, The Bleeding Lamb. Let's read Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 to verse 11. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth month of this month you shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eaten shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening, and they shall take of the lamb and strike it on the two side posts. Sorry, they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts, on the upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, 
and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God, that it is a lamb for a household. Nor God, we thank you that this lamb is big enough for us tonight. Nor God, there's not enough, enough of us to comprehend nor to feast on this lamb tonight. And Nor God, we do thank you for such a feast. We thank you it's under the blood of the lamb that we gather. Nor God, these aren't mere stories or ritual. Nor God, this isn't mere fables. But Lord God, this is a living reality in our midst. We have experienced the the blood of the lamb. We've experienced the atoning blood. We've experienced what it is on that night for the death angel to pass over and for the Lord to come along and to stand between us and the death angel because of the precious blood of the lamb that was shed. Nor God, we plead the blood of the lamb tonight. We know the power is in the blood. The virtue is in the blood. Cleansing is in the blood. Sanctification is in the blood. Everything that we need is in the blood and so by faith we not only shed it we not only apply it but we drink the blood tonight by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Lord God we pray for a victory in this meeting tonight in each one of our lives give us a victory over the evil one my God show us the power that's in Jesus blood tonight wash us and make us clean in the blood of the lamb remove all fear of the enemy or death nor anything, Lord God. Lord God, we are asking, O oh God, that you'd calm our hearts tonight. And Lord God, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might love you and enjoy you and feast on you tonight as we shelter under the blood of Jesus Christ. We come here, O oh God, to feed on the fullness of your Son. Lord God, we, we pray, O oh God, give us grace tonight that we might be satisfied in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let me just, before I embark on this chapter and expound and preach and teach from it, let me just say about a week ago, a good friend Cecil from the North just sent me a message about the Bible uh, project in relation to this issue of penal substitution. Tim Mackey, one of the main guys, leaders of the Bible Project, he put me onto a video of about an hour long on the atonement from about five years ago. As Tim Mackey, about 36 minutes into that video, began, begins to liken how I've just described the cross to paganism of this world's religion. And to say that if we believe in a God that demands punishment for sin and the shedding of blood. It is because we've been influenced by this pagan world. I've got all of his quotes here of what he began to say. He even uses all the phraseologies of these enemies that I talked about before, demanding his pound of flesh and all of those other horrible statements. Do you remember what Candace taught to the ladies some back uh, some time back about the Bible project, how they took 
the book of Esther and twisted it. You may not have noticed it if it wasn't pointed out to you. Or they take the book of Job and they twist it. And there's many other things. It's palatable. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It's instructive. It's dynamic what they do. But the problem is you've got to know when there's poison in the pot. It's very, very important. And so you have a ministry here beginning to affect the church to insinuate when you talk about the shedding of the blood and God being satisfied only by the shedding of blood at the cross of his son, that you're actually influenced by pagan false religion. I want to tell you that is very serious. But it's not surprising that the Bible project are only beginning to show these things in little ways. I went on and looked and Tim Mackey actually has a reading page of all his suggested books. Right at the top are his greatest suggestions. Four of the books, big volumes, are by N.T. Wright, the man I warned you about in Enemies of the Cross. Then I began to flick through. I got bored after a time, but I counted more than 16 other books by N.T. Wright. This is just his reading list. This is one of the two main influences behind the Bible project. And also he lists all these books by a man called Scott McKnight. You wouldn't know him, but he's a liberal. He is another false teacher. And then there's the man, Michael Heiser, I think is how you pronounce his name, introducing ideas about demons and angels and powers of darkness. And he's become popular in teaching that. I think he's not long dead. But he began to insinuate that the Godhead involved angelic beings that decided what to do. I want to tell you that is very dangerous. And so I'm just touching on this. What I'm telling you is the Bible project if unless they've repented of that or changed or maybe their understanding was wrong five years ago, this is what is hid in there. There's leaven in the pot. You've got to be very careful. About two and a half weeks ago, I'm just laying the foundation. I'm going somewhere here. I want you to see the importance of what we deal with. Because in Exodus 12, you could say, I know that chapter so well. But you need to understand why it's so important to understand what I'm going to share with you. About three and, uh, two and a half weeks ago on the 3rd of March, I was reminded of a song written by Don Francisco. I'm not sure how many know Don Francisco. And it's a song I hadn't listened to for years called Vision of the Valley. And so you understand with my preaching, I went back and looked up that song. And it's a song that deeply impacted me decades ago, many years ago. And I was moved to write to him. I wrote a beautiful very encouraging letter to Don Francisco. He is a very well, if you're from my generation, he's a worldwide known um, musician. And um, he is about as gifted as any man I have seen in my entire life within the church. I can't even think of someone more gifted in my eyes with voice and with his ability on the guitar. Extraordinary, like a poet singing and, and sharing the things from the Bible. Well, I wrote that and I didn't hear and back thought, well, I probably never will until a few days ago. And a friend who listens us from South Africa just messaged me the other day. He said, have you, he didn't know I'd written. No one knew. I hadn't told anyone here that I'd written to Don Francisco. 
But he told me, he says, have you seen Don Francisco's page? You need to read it. And this is just from a few days ago that Don Francisco puts up on his, on his Facebook page, deriding penal substitution, yeah. writing an article or a statement against it. He actually begins to say there on Facebook just a few days ago, the idea that the Bible teaches that we are born sinners is false. He then went on to say penal substitution only goes back to Luther and Calvin. Then he says, what if God never desired a sacrifice? But it, it is only our own conscience that is demanding that sacrifice. I read this and then I looked at what his wife wrote in blue. This is Wendy Francisco. I don't like mentioning names, but I need to alarm you here tonight. I am deeply alarmed. A man whose music deeply impacted me, going back to my teenage years, has now deviated from the simplicity of the gospel. A magnificently gifted and used man who I'm commending three weeks ago and I find out he's an enemy of penal substitution. This is what his wife writes. We do understand that many people believe in the blood sacrifice God of Western Christianity. We used to as well. It's difficult to grasp what Jesus was saying about God and that he doesn't desire sacrifice. And she goes on and on and on talking about their gospel and their message of grace, that God would never send someone to hell, never. If you know Don Francisco, you'll be shocked, and anyone online is going to be deeply shocked if they didn't know this. I am deeply disturbed. My message, part four, the bleeding lamb. When John the Baptist came preaching in John chapter one, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was taken 4,000 years of Old Testament history, thousands of years of Jewish history, 4,000 years of the shedding of the innocent blood of lambs. And he was condensing that up in one sentence and pointing his finger at a man the God-man, Christ Jesus, and he is divine, and he was perfectly divine, and he was always God, and he never sat his deity aside, but he was absolutely man. He was human. He had blood to shed on the cross. And as John points the finger at him and says, behold the Lamb of God, you know what John is thinking? He's going right back to the blood that Abel shed in a sacrifice that we dealt with in that last message. All the lambs, the sacrifices, everything was summed up in this one statement. Behold the Lamb of God. Notice this lamb is God's lamb, God's unique lamb, God's only begotten lamb. All them were shadows, prophecies, type, pictures. All of them were looking forward, but this is God's lamb. Now we all look back to that one singular lamb. 
You see, that Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. When he said, behold the lamb, he is talking about Exodus chapter 12 that we're coming to here tonight. He is speaking very specifically about it. John the Baptist pointed back to the lambs of the Old Testament. We'll see all through the New Testament, the Lamb of God is a very important symbol. We read in Acts chapter 8, how Philip the evangelist comes alongside the eunuch, and the eunuch is reading the scriptures. And what did he do as he's running alongside him? He says, do you understand what you're reading out loud in the chariot? And he says, no, I need a man to teach me. So he gets up. It's all about a lamb being slain for sin. And you know what? The Bible says in Acts chapter 8, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. It's a text in Isaiah 53 about a lamb, but he preaches Jesus. He said, this is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God. Our Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 5 and 7 was more clear. He says this, but even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. In other words, Jesus is the Passover lamb that's only taught in Exodus chapter 12. If you want to understand how can Christ be called the Passover lamb, you've got to go to Exodus chapter 12. You can't understand it otherwise. All the teaching is in Exodus chapter 5. And Paul says Christ is the Passover lamb, the singular Passover lamb. He is that lamb. Or what about when you go to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writing says that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's very important. No blemishes on this lamb. And then last of all, we have John, the apostle, writing in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 and elsewhere in Revelation. He saw in vision one that stood as a lamb as it had been slain. So we see all through the New Testament, the apostles and John the Baptist are saying Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of all the teaching of the Old Testament. He is the Passover Lamb. He is Isaiah 53. He is the blood that was shed. He is the absolute fulfillment of that. And so I want to bring you to Exodus chapter 12. See, last time we dealt with Genesis Next time we're going to Leviticus, but here we're in Exodus. I'm not going to go through every book of the Old Testament, but I'll make a good job at it. I'll do enough to show you that all through the Old Testament, Christ is there. Not only Christ, the cross is there. Not only the cross, the blood is there because the blood is more emphasized than the cross in the New Testament. And not only the blood, but penal substitution is all through the Old Testament. It's everywhere. And you know what I said about the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a commentary on the New Testament. You won't understand the New Testament. You've got to study the Old Testament. You cannot understand the New unless you delve into Exodus 12 or Isaiah 53 or Genesis chapter 4. You cannot understand it. It would make no possible sense. You can't separate it. We're not like 
that, that crazy American who said we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, Andy Stanley, uh, his name almost uh, escaped me. That is heresy. That is dangerous. That is wicked. No Christian would ever say that. No real spirit-filled Christian could even think that. It says in Genesis 22 and 7 about Isaac speaking to his father Abraham as Abraham is about to sacrifice. Listen to him very carefully. You preachers need to preach on this text. It says, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? There was a thing called a burnt offering. Where is the lamb? You can't worship God without a lamb, a sacrifice. You can't have a burnt offering unless you have a lamb. Where is the lamb? You know what I'm asking in the church? You know what we should be asking every preacher? Where is the lamb in your church? Where is the lamb in your preaching? Where's the lamb in your praying? Where's the lamb in your evangelism? Where's the lamb in your worship tonight? I, I ought to, and you ought to be asking, where is the lamb? We ought to have the spirit of Isaac that goes inquiring of that older generation. Where is the lamb? I don't see the lamb. Where is the lamb? Okay, I hope you're ready. Exodus chapter 12. I want to point out to you three things about the lamb in Exodus chapter 12. And I want to point three things out to you about the worshipers. Three of each. But I can't help it. Although I'm only going to do three things on the lamb, even when I come to the worshipers, I've still got to keep talking about the lamb. I can't stop it. You can't deal with the worshiper unless it's dominated with the lamb. To preach about you and what you ought to do and what you ought to be, I've got to preach the lamb because it makes no sense without that. Anything you do makes no sense whatsoever if the lamb doesn't dominate and fill the picture and so let me, here in Exodus chapter 12, give you three things about the lamb that is mentioned. In verse 1 to verse 6, we have the lamb chosen and inspected for sacrifice. The first thing we see is it's a chosen lamb. It's not a volunteer lamb. It's not any lamb. It's a specific lamb. And you know what? It's a lamb that's got to fulfill the regulations of God. God chose this lamb. It is God's lamb. God won't accept any lamb. He'll only accept one lamb. And he's got very clear specifications of what that lamb is to be, or he'll reject it. In verse 2, we read about a time that all of time is marked from this Passover. When this lamb is going to be slain, when this lamb is chosen, You've got to choose a lamb. You've got to get a lamb. You don't have anything until you have the lamb. Until you go to the lamb, seek the lamb, find the lamb, you haven't even begun. Time has not begun for you. Spiritual life has not begun. And so in verse 2, we see the time itself in the Jewish calendar, in the religious calendar, it is marked from the lamb. Without the lamb, you have no history. You know, when I ask you, tell me about you in your life with Christ, until you meet the Lamb, you've got nothing to say, nothing to share, no history, no testimony. 
You know when your testimony starts is when you meet the lamb, when you find the lamb. And you know what? You may think you found the lamb. The lamb found you. The lamb was chosen by God and that lamb actually finds you. In verse two, it talks here about the history of a nation, the history of a people, the history of the entire people, every individual is marked by this lamb. Passover is the beginning of time. Passover is the beginning of history. Passover is the beginning of everything. And you know what? You can find Pentecost if you know where Passover is and when Passover is. You know, there's no date for Pentecost. There's no date in the calendar. It moves all over the place. Pentecost doesn't stay the same. Passover is on a set date. If you find the Passover lamb, you'll always find Pentecost. If you go after Pentecost and the dove, you'll get lost and you'll get confused. To get the dove, you've got to find the lamb. To get the real Holy Spirit, you've got to find the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to Passover, you can actually count the days, the steps, all the way through to Pentecost. And so we see that time begins with the lamb. In verse three to verse six, we are told that this lamb is chosen on the 10th day of the month. It is to be chosen according to God's word. Then it is to be separated. Look what it says in verse three, a lamb for a house. The lamb isn't just for God. It is also for every house of God's people. There is a lamb. You know what? The gospel's very personal. The gospel isn't just for this church. It's not just for me as an individual. It is for my home. It is very personal. There's nothing more personal than your home, your home life, your family, your personal details, your downtime. And yet this lamb is for that. We read in these verses that all the congregation were to gather for this choosing of the lamb, this separation of the lamb, this preparing of the lamb, all the congregation. The word congregation there speaks of the church. It says in verse six, the whole assembly of the congregation, all God's people gathering at the same time to do the same thing. How do we define the church? What is the church? What is the ecclesia? It's the same people gathered in the same place at the same time to do the same thing. It's not two people meeting in Starbucks. That is not the church. Lots of people have said, we are the church over a Starbucks. No, you're not. It is all the local body gathering together, functioning together. And that's what's happening here. Where are they gathering? Around the lamb. All the assembly, all gathering, all around the lamb. You need to remember that. See Sunday, we gather around the lamb. See Friday night when we pray, we gather around the lamb. See on Wednesday night when we have Bible study, we gather around the lamb. See when we go to your house and have some fellowship, we gather around the lamb. You know when we go away in church camp, we gather around the lamb. It's always a gathering around the lamb. When we begin to know this and understand it, it is a very powerful thing. And it says in verse six, notice this, sorry, verse four, notice this very carefully. And if the household be too little for the lamb, it doesn't say if the lamb be too little for the household, 
Do you know all through this chapter, it only mentions one lamb. Do you know there's about two to three million people in Israel at this time? They're in Egypt. This is the night of the last judgment, the 10th judgment. Tomorrow, they're escaping out of the land and heading for the Red Sea, out into the Sinai Desert. And here they are, this word, if the household be too little for the lamb. This lamb is bigger than all of us. I, I, I assure you, 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 you cannot imagine how great this lamb is. The congregation is never bigger than the little lamb. All through this chapter, there's one lamb, only one lamb. Three million people. Can you imagine how many lambs were actually going to die that night? Can you imagine how many homes a lamb was being eaten in that night? Can you imagine? I couldn't even number it. It's impossible. Three million people in their homes, slaying lambs, shedding blood, eating a lamb. Can you imagine? But this chapter only mentions one lamb. It's always one lamb. There is only one lamb. You know, I don't care who the Christian is. If I meet a real believer, it's only the one lamb. I don't care about churches or denominations or titles or specifications. I only have one interest, the lamb of God. Do you know the lamb? Do you gather to the lamb? Is he your focus? Is he your message? Is he the fire that burns in your bosom? You see, there's only one lamb. And I want to tell you that one lamb is sufficient for your little household. It's sufficient for this church. We, it's not a case of, is the lamb big enough for this church? What about the Christ we have? Is he sufficient for this church? Are you kidding? I can't even preach them all. I, I'd have to preach every night, probably all through the night, and then begin in the morning again just to try and catch up on this. I can't keep up with this. He is a great lamb, a large lamb, a magnificent lamb. You know what? This one lamb has the answer to all of your needs. There's not one problem, not one issue, nothing in your family, nothing in this city that there isn't an answer in this one lamb. It says in verse 5, without a blemish. Notice how specific this is. This lamb has to be without a blemish. This is my second point. Not only a chosen lamb, an innocent lamb, an innocent lamb. Without blemish, a male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep and from the goats. It had to be an innocent lamb, no blemish whatsoever. What does that mean? The word means it has to be complete, entire, whole, sound, nothing missing, no eye missing. Don't you dare bring a lamb to the Lord without an eye or a broken leg or black wool. They'll reject it. I want to tell you, bring a lamb that is whole, it is healthy, it is perfect. No defection, de defects, no sickness, no uncleanness in it. You know what they had to do for four days? That little lamb came in from the 10th day to the 14th day. That lamb come into your house. You know what's going to happen, don't you? Well, Eggle is going to fall in love with the lamb. And there's Rory going, she better not fall in love with that lamb because that lamb is, is going bye-bye in a few days. But Egla can't help herself. The little lamb, it nudges up against her. It's one year old. It's so cute. It's innocent. It's harmless. It's so pure. 
Who couldn't fall in love with it? Even Paul would fall in love with the lamb and saying, should we really? And so it says it is a lamb without blemish. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, for he, that is God, has made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us. And notice this, who knew no sin. Who was made sin for you? Someone who did not know sin. He was an innocent lamb. He never sinned in word, thought, deed, action. Not even a shadow of it. You know what? He was the perfect lamb of God. It says in Hebrews 7:26, concerning him that he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who is Christ? He's made higher than the heavens. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says, who did no sin. You know, a lot of preachers today, you'd think Christ was a man who sinned. That is dangerous. You don't have salvation. You're on your way to hell. You're you're a heretic. If you don't know he was utterly divine, sinless, perfect, no blemish, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. And then it also says in 1 John chapter 3 and 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin. And in him is no sin. Look at this lamb. He's manifest to take away your sin, but there's no sin in him. He is the sacrifice for your sin, but never. He's a spotless, perfect lamb of God. It's so important you understand. He's a chosen lamb, chosen by God. He's the only one that would ever be chosen by God as a sacrifice. But he's also a innocent lamb, absolutely innocent. You know, in Exodus chapter 12, the night before their exodus from Egypt, and they repeated this all through their history, straight down to today, every Passover today in Israel, every real Jewish home, they still keep the Passover with all of their traditions and all of their culture right the way down to today. You know what they always done in those days in Israel's history through to the days of Jesus? They kept the lamb in the house. Why? They're studying it. Any blemishes, any mistakes. You you think that you can pick up things in the church or you can judge someone else. You, you, You don't know anything like what these Jews were. They could watch a lamb and see any blemish. They they weren't put off by its meh. By its innocent look, they could spot a blemish. They, they could pinpoint any defect in that lamb. Four days it was in their home. And you know what the word of God says? It says they were to keep that lamb. In other words, guard it, care for it, provide for it. A male of one year with no blemish and no bone broken. You know, on the cross, remember, Christ should have had his bones broken because it's getting near that time. Nobody dies that quick on the cross. No one dies that quick. The two dying thieves didn't. And here's Christ in the middle, a strong man. And yet he died before they could break his bones. You know why? No bone 
on the Lamb of God was to be broken. He fulfilled the type. He fulfilled the picture. He fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Bible. It says in verse 6, the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. This is the third thing I want to deal with, is the bleeding lamb. Not just a chosen lamb, not just an innocent lamb, but it is a bleeding lamb. In verse 6, they keep it until the 14th day of the month, from the 10th day to the 14th. And they're to guard it, they're to watch over it, they're to care it for it, they are to protect it. But on that 14th day, do you know what they're to do? It says in verse 7, and they shall take of the blood and shall strike it. They slay the lamb. They strike the lamb. They kill the lamb. Do you know what this is? This is blood religion. This is biblical Christianity. This is Bible religion. You know what? This is God's plan and purpose. There's nothing nice about bloodshedding. There was a preacher many years ago when W.P. Nicholson was preaching in London. Do you know what they used to call him down in the 1920s? He would see thousands of souls born again, washed in the blood. Do you know what they called him? Bloody Nicholson. Not as a curse word, but because he preached the blood. That old-fashioned Presbyterian preacher, he would preach the blood. He would preach it until in every town in Northern Ireland... Thousands. He would go to one small town, 10,000 people. 1,000 would get born again. He would go to the next town, 2,000 would get born again. He would go to the next town, 15,000 would get born again. Place after place after place. You know why? He was a preacher on the blood. You know what the main age of, of people were and sex were? They're usually men in their 50s that he, he predominantly seen saved in that revival. Nobody reaches men in their 50s across the nation, hard-working men in their 50s. I want to tell you, that's the very group he utterly annihilated for the gospel. You know why? He preached the precious blood of the Lamb. But all those false preachers hated him. You know, there's power in the blood of Jesus. This is a bleeding Lamb. You know, some people don't like a bleeding Christ. They don't like a sin-atoning Christ. They don't like a Christ who had to shed his blood. They don't like the blood of Jesus. They say, give me the resurrection. Give me his good moral lives. Give me his miracles. Give me his ascension. But don't come to me talking about the blood. I want to tell you, you don't have anything. If you do not have a bleeding lamb, if your lamb is not a bleeding lamb, a slain lamb, a suffering lamb, a dying lamb, one who laid down his life, you do not have a lamb tonight. Your lamb is a worthless lamb. It's not God's chosen lamb. It's not an innocent lamb because God's innocent lamb laid down his life for sinners and they take of the blood and they strike it on the side posts of the upper door. I want to go to the people now. We have seen this lamb, this innocent lamb. But let me go to the worshippers here and give you three points about them. Number one, their faith in the blood. Do you hear me? Their faith in the blood. That is so important when you're dealing with the lamb of God. Remember Exodus 20, uh, 12, what's it all about? It's about Jesus. 
Why, why was all of this taught in Israel and practiced every single year, all through millennia? Why was that practiced? Why did God give this? Because of Jesus, it pointed to Jesus. It's a picture, it's a type of Jesus. But there's many types here. First thing is their faith in the blood. They shall take of the blood and strike it. They do something with the blood. It's not just the death of the lamb. You'll, you'll know I don't like people saying the blood of Jesus spilt. The blood of Jesus wasn't spilt. Do you know what a spill is? I trip, I accidentally spill. Jesus' blood was not spilt. Never talk about Jesus' blood being spilt. We changed one of the hymns here and we took out spilt and we put in shed because I don't like the word spilt. Spilt is an accidental thing. Shedding is the biblical word. Shedding is in my Bible, the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. But do you know what you have here? They took the blood. Some people like Christ, they like the Lamb of God, but they don't like to do anything with the blood. But my point is, their faith in the blood. How do you know a real follower of the Lamb? They do something with the blood. Their faith is in the blood. They actually take the blood and strike it on the two side posts of the door post and the upper post above the door. They put it over their dwelling place according to God's word. You know, when you're sheltered under the blood, when you put faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, when these Jews took that blood and they shed it and they struck it on the sides, on the lintels of the door, not on the ground, not under the wooden bit under their feet, on the sides and above their heads. That's where they placed the blood. They could have sat in their house that night, afraid, lest the blood didn't have power. What if the death angel comes in? What if I was lied to? What if there isn't power? What if my faith isn't strong enough? Well, where is your faith? Is it in the blood or is it in your faith? Is my faith big enough? Is my faith strong enough? Will my faith last if I see the looming shadow of the death angel? Will my faith go through tonight, the darkness of this night? I don't know what's going to happen tonight. Well, what if my faith can't overcome? It's not your faith. It's faith in the blood. The blood saves you. The blood is shed for you. The blood is the power. The blood stops the death angel coming in. Just make sure your faith is in the blood. Maybe he was inside there and remembered his past sins. Maybe the devil comes and says, remember you've done this and remember you've done that and remember that from your past and they all think you're a good Christian. I know your sins. Look at your, who's that the voice of? The accuser of the brethren. Are you under the blood? Have you run to refuge for the blood? Do you, have, have you gone to the blood and repented and, and come to the blood for cleansing? Have you ever sinned in your Christian life? And you're genuinely sorry. And you've gone to the blood. And you've gone to the Lord said, please forgive me. Wash me and make me clean. And you walk away and you still feel guilty. And you still feel unclean. Has anyone done that? I have. And yet I've learned you've got to have faith in the blood. If I walk away and say I feel guilty. So what? I know I've repented. 
I still feel unclean. Yes, but the blood of Jesus Christ. You know what? That will lift off you. Some younger believers actually get confused in this because they did have a dramatic experience. The blood forgiven me, washing me, cleansing me. Then a bit down the road, they do something and they go, I still feel guilty. You're in a battle now. Are you going to believe the word of God? Are you going to stand with faith in the blood? Or do you have more faith in your feeling? I feel guilty. Okay, so the blood has less power than your feelings because you feel guilty. You say you've repented. You've come to the blood. What about if my motives aren't right? I mean, I hope my motives are right, but are my motives right? Maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I'm not good enough to be here. To, fact, to, to be protected by the blood. Maybe my feelings should be different. Maybe I should try something else than the blood. Do you realize all the thoughts that go through a Christian's mind? Do you realize how many people in Israel were sitting there in their homes? They've obeyed the word of God. They believe the word of God. They have acted according to the word of God. They believe in the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb is applied. And yet thought after thought after thought comes against them. Do you know why they applied the door above and to the sides, but not beneath? Do you know why? It says in Hebrews chapter 10, 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. That's what God's law done. But of how much more sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing and hath done despite to the Spirit of grace. See, if people died under the law of Moses, two or three witnesses, you're going to die without mercy. Don't you realize that under the gospel, if you despise the blood... If you reject the Son of God, never walk away from the Son of God. You're in seer's trouble. I tell you, fall flat in your face, but don't you ever walk away from the Son of God. Do you know what it's saying here? Don't walk on the blood. Don't despise the blood. Don't treat the blood or the work of the cross. See all these enemies who are beginning to mock the blood of Jesus. How dangerous. You know, these enemies, they're beginning to laugh at penal substitution. You, you're... Walking over hell on a thin sheet of ice. That's what you're doing. You're playing a very dangerous game. You, you think men are going to die under the law of Moses and you can play games around the blood and the cross and the atonement and change the teaching and rip it apart and mock it and caricature it. You're on dangerous ground. I want to tell you I'd rather be in a burning building than a preacher that does that. Because you know what? He will be held accountable for that. You begin to play games with the gospel. The Holy Spirit will be grieved with you. It actually says concern Moses in Hebrews chapter 12, 13. And the blood shall be for you. Sorry, um, Hebrews chapter 11, 28. Through faith, Moses kept the Passover. Do you realize you keep the Passover you keep the shedding of blood by faith. It's a thing of faith. I believe the saints of God. I believe in the blood. That's why I plead the blood when I come in prayer. That's why I even say in my prayers, I'm coming a blood sprinkled way. I am so conscious. I, not one of my prayers will be accepted 
apart from the blood. It says here in Exodus 12, 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon your houses. The blood is given as a testimony. And it says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over it. It's given to you for a token as a testimony to give you assurance. The blood is for you tonight. The blood is for you tonight. The blood is given as a token. You know what the blood speaks? Have you heard? Listen, just listen tonight. Do you realize the blood of Jesus has a voice? Remember what God said about Abel's voice? The blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood had a voice. It said, avenge me, avenge me, avenge my blood. He killed me, avenge my blood. Jesus' blood doesn't do that. Do you know Jesus' blood has a voice? Mercy, mercy, show them mercy, forgive their sins. Lord God, have mercy on him, have mercy on her. You know, there's a voice in the blood. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would make you hear it tonight, that there's power. But he also says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is where the word Passover comes from. I will pass over you. I, not just that I will keep moving, but I'm going to shelter you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. When I smite the land of Egypt, who smote the land of Egypt? God smote the land of Egypt. God is behind this judgment. God is bringing death. God is bringing judgment. Who's going to save you? God is. Have you noticed these people that want all the good stuff? They say, God does all the good stuff. God doesn't do any bad stuff. God doesn't judge. God won't punish. God won't cast men in hell. He'll just forgive you and do good things and save you and redeem you and bless you. But he doesn't do any of those other things. My Bible says it's the same God doing all of these things. It says in chapter 12, 22, and ye shall take a branch of hyssop. Now hyssop's a, fluff, a, a floppy sort of a thing to use. But you use hyssop, you grow hyssop, it's a plant. But you use that to dip in the blood to put on the door lentils. Do you know what hyssop represents? It's a very flimsy thing. Do you know what it represents in your life? Very flimsy, very floppy, very natural. It represents your faith. You use faith to apply the blood. I know it's a floppy old thing, but I want to tell you, it does the job. God has ordained hyssop to be used. Dip it in the blood, in the basin, and then strike it on the doorpost. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Don't go out from under this blood covering. And the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and upon the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in onto your house to smite you. I want you to see something here tonight that as all of this happens, two persons are passing through the night. Two persons pass over every doorway. There is, a, there is an angel of the Lord there's an angel of death. There's one who is called the destroyer, who is sent by God himself. And he's to go over every single home, every single person, every single house, every single street. That destroyer is a spiritual being. 
on a mission to take the life of the firstborn in that house. But there's a second person, the Lord. Do you know what happens when you find the blood? The destroyer is there still with an intent to destroy, still with a mission. Kill the firstborn. You can't change that. He's got a commission. Kill every single firstborn. The blood is shed. Who's the blood for? It is for God. Is the destroyer looking at the blood? No, he doesn't care. He says, you're the firstborn. I want to destroy you. The first, the destroyer does not take note of the blood. It doesn't say it in the text. God takes note of the blood. Then what does God do? He stands between the destroyer and you because of the blood, because of the blood. He stands there between the destroyer and your home, your life. And he said, "Uh uh-uh, he's covered by the blood of the lamb. The blood is shed and the destroyer has to pass on. There's a second thing, feasting on the lamb. Not only faith in the blood. Notice those who gather around the lamb. They not only put their absolute faith, confidence, trust in the blood, but they feast on the lamb of God. Do you know what this is? This lamb's a substitute. This lamb suffered in their place. Do you hear me tonight? It is a penal substitution. It takes their place. It dies in their place. It suffers in their place. It suffers their death that they should have suffered that night. But you go free. You're absolutely free. The lamb lies dead. Its blood is shed. You can't put the blood back in. It's dead. The life is in the blood. The blood has been shed. The lamb is actually dead. You know what? It was a substitute. Abel's lamb was a substitute. It died in his place, suffered his death, that he could be made righteous. What's happened in Exodus 12? Every single house, you should have died. You deserve to die. The death angel came to get you, but a lamb died in your place. It's blood. How much more the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you realize tonight you're washed in the blood of the lamb? You're redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You're saved by the blood of the lamb. Oh yes, the death angel will come knocking, but the Lord himself watches over the blood, feasting on the lamb. Look at verse eight. And they shall eat that very night under the shelter of the blood. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roast with fire. Notice how specific it is. Oh, do you know what I think, saith the heretic? I believe in Christ, but I don't like the blood. Oh, I believe in the cross. I believe in a loving Savior, but I don't like penal substitution. I don't like substitution. I don't like blood atonement. I don't like propitiation. I don't like all of these words that you seem to like. It's a foreign language to me. I know. I absolutely know. But you don't have a choice. There's details here about this lamb. What you do with this lamb. You're to take this lamb after the blood is shed and been used by you. You then take the lamb and the lamb has to be roasted. It's got to be roasted. It can't be raw. It can't be boiled in a pot. You know, some people, and it says it here, you must not boil it. You mustn't do that. You know, when you boil a lamb in a pot, it's hidden from sight. 
you put it away, it's in a pot, it's getting boiled. As you boil it, the bone comes away from the flesh. It loses its appearance. It goes into parts and pieces as you boil it. But you know what? The whole testimony here, it's a full Christ. It's a whole Christ. It's a clear Christ. It's a complete Christ. I'm feeding on the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God has to be roast. That means consecrated. That means God has done everything to that lamb. The fire has been extinguished on that lamb. And now you can feast on a lamb. He bore your penalty. He suffered your death. He is a complete Christ. It says in verse 46, In one house it shall be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad of the house. Neither shall ye break a bone of it. In verse 9, it says, eat it not raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire. Isn't it very particular? The blood has to be shed. Oh, I'm just going to boil it. I love boiled Christ. I love raw Christ. You don't have a choice. He's got to be, his blood has to be shed. That blood needs drained off. It needs to be on the door. You've got to roast this Christ. You've got to eat him in a certain way. Oh, I just believe in raw Christ. You don't have a right to eat this Christ any old way. He's got to be prepared in a certain way. Why do you think a, a godly preacher spends time over the word of God? Why do they spend their entire life on this, giving themselves to preparation? You know, I love a cook. When I sit in the house of a cook or a table at a cook, and I go, they spend decades at this. They've got the apron on. They've got the experience. They've got the history. They've got that look about them. They know exactly what they're doing. You know, it's terrible when you get invited to someone's house and halfway through the meal, you go, oh, no, they don't have a clue what they're doing. But it's too late. I'm eating. I'm in the midst of the meal. I can't escape. I can't make an excuse. I am actually here. I'm here through to the end. Some of this stuff, I don't know what it is. I can't identify it, but I better keep eating through it. I don't know where you've ever been in those situations. I've had some strange looking things in some uh, countries that I've been to. That's why you pray hard before you go into those houses. I want to tell you. But this lamb has to be roast. It's got to be prepared. Notice as well in verse 9, it says, The head with the legs and with the pertinence thereof. Some people just want the head of the lamb, the intellectual thought of the lamb. We don't want the legs of the lamb. You know what the legs of the lamb is? How Christ walked. No, 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 no. I concentrate. I'm more of an academic person. I like the mind and the theology. Oh, no, you don't get a choice. Head and legs, head and legs, head and legs. Oh, and pertinence, all the inwards, the inward motives, the inward desires, the hidden things of Christ. Oh, no, I just like the outward obvious. No, you need to get right in there to the mysteries of Christ, the dark words of Christ. You need to get into it. Saints of God, I'm telling you how to eat Christ. He is your substitute lamb. He has provided for you. He died in your place. Now sit down under the blood and feast upon the lamb of God. Notice as well in these verses, it says you're to eat it with bitter herbs. These herbs aren't nice herbs. They're bitter herbs. They're not nice herbs. Why did they do that? It says here 
that the herbs are given so they remember their bondage in Egypt, that it was bitter to be in Egypt. You know, every year when they keep Passover, they've got to remember. Do you, do you know someone who walks with Christ a long time is in danger? They reach, reach certain points, trials, troubles, things go on, and they start going, I should go back to Egypt. It wasn't like this in Egypt. We ate well in Egypt. You're forgetting what Egypt was like. You're free. The blood of the Lamb brought you out. Christ brought you out. When every time you feast on Christ, there's some bitter herbs in there. It's sanctification. It's dealing with your heart. There's always something in there. It's bitter to the taste. You know what? Munch away on it. Just chew away on those bitter herbs. You know why? It reminds you. Do you remember what Egypt was like? Do you remember how they treated you in the nightclubs? Do you remember how that old boyfriend and girlfriend treated you? Have you forgotten what it's like? You know, we get down the road a bit and you begin to think and imagine and the old mates and the nights we used to have. Do you realize how wicked and vile it was? They betrayed you and lied on you and hurt you and offended you and mocked you behind your back. I want to tell you, they took you for a ride. Don't you ever forget, eat herbs with the Lamb of God. He is succulent. He is beautiful. He is roast. But eat those herbs. Those herbs remind you where you came from. The latter wish they were back there. We know that. Israel at times, no water out here. Wish it was back in Egypt. God help you. Verse 10, and ye shall let nothing of it remain to the morning. Eat it all. You know, when you sit down to eat in Christ, eat everything. Eat everything. Like the manna, don't say, oh, sure, I'll eat it some other time. Eat everything. Eat your full. Eat completely. Eat until you're satisfied. Eat until your need is met. Some people sit down, peck on Christ and wonder why they're still hungry. Why am I not satisfied? You haven't feasted on them. You just peck and you walk away and say, sure, I'll finish another time. Thirdly, the readiness for the journey. Look at verse 11. And thus shall ye eat. This is how you eat. It's through the blood, your substitute lamb. Judgment came on Christ for you. You've gone free. You're justified, made righteous, cleansed, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You're, you now have the privilege to feast and to eat and to be satisfied, to get energy and strength and sustenance on the lamb of God. No one ever had better than you do. I want to tell you, feasting on the lamb, but the readiness for the journey. And then shall they eat it with their loins girded. In other words, that's their middle part, belts on, everything tied around them, your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, not man's Passover. If you go through this chapter, the word Lord is mentioned about 17 times, 18 times. The Lord's Passover, the Lord's lamb. It's not man's lamb. This isn't man's gospel. Mr. Don Francisco doesn't have a right to change this gospel, you know. It's not his gospel. It's not my gospel. It's not your gospel. It is God's gospel. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a right to change this or to separate it or to, or to do something brand new with it. There's a way to, and this third point, the readiness for the journey, the Christian life. You've been redeemed by the blood. A sinner's substitute died in your place. It was punished that you could go free. 
You begin a journey. Do you know what the Passover represents? You getting born again, redeemed, washed in the blood of the Lamb, forgiven, your faith in the blood, and you begin to feast on the Lamb. Oh, it's not a one-off meal. You'll do this every year. You'll have a big feast to remind you. Feast on the Lamb whose blood was shed for you. You're going to journey with the Lamb. The Lamb's going to go everywhere with you. This Passover is going to follow you for thousands of years. Every country, every town, every city, wherever you go, through whatever trials, the Passover is going to be there. We as a church, every Lord's Day, every Sunday, we remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when the Lord's table was instituted? It was at the Passover. It was right at the Passover. After supper, you know those ignorant preachers again, they, they say, oh, the Lord's table's to be a meal. Where do you get that? They say, we're getting it wrong with our little bit of Ribena juice and a, a, a bit of a cracker. It's to be a meal. That's the real Lord's table. No, it is not. It's not. They've written books on it. Load, I've got their books on it. They've written loads of books on it. Do you know what the Bible says? After supper, after the Passover, after they had eaten the meal, then he took the bread, then he took the wine and said, take eat, take drink. So it's after supper. It wasn't the Passover meal, but it is connected. It is connected. So every Lord's Day, we break bread together, remembering our Passover lamb, our sacrifice, the blood that was shed for us, that he took our place. He is our Passover lamb. And we feast on him. We eat him. We enjoy him. He strengthens us. But remember, it's for a purpose. When you meet the lamb, it's the beginning of the journey. And every time you feast on the lamb, it's to make that journey. So what do they look like? The loins are girded. The loins are the place of strength. You know, when you feast on Christ, it's for a journey. You are going to make a journey. Some people think this is only about salvation. I'm saved. I'm washed in the blood. God loves me. And they go out and make their own journey. Not God's journey. They live in the world, like the world, as a sinner. That's got it totally wrong. You know what? You need your loins girt about. You need your belt on. You need to buckle yourself tight. You need a, this is the place of your strength, loins. You need your loins ready for a journey. You are making a Christian journey. Why did he save you? To make a journey, to walk, to go somewhere in the plan of God, to go in and possess the promised land, but also the shoes on your feet. What does that sound like? Sounds like your feet are shod with the preparation of the preaching of the gospel. Make sure you've got your shoes on. You know what shoes do? These shoes, Roman shoes, Roman soldier shoes, make you stand. They're not just for walking. They've got metal spikes in them to make you stand. Do you know what preaching the gospel in your workplace does? Makes you stand. Do you know when you preach the gospel to your family, it makes you stand. Just go amongst your old mates or in an environment and you're not telling them the gospel. Very hard to make a stand. You don't preach the gospel, but if you preach the gospel, they know who you are. It's a whole lot easier to live right. You know, as soon as you make a stand, guess what? I'm a born again Christian. What? Then they'll tell you how you ought to live. They're experts. I I mean, sinners who have never read a Bible, never been in a church, never heard a sermon. 
they innately, naturally, somehow know how you ought to live as a Christian. And you know what? An awful lot of the time they're right. They're absolutely right. So you need your shoes on, staff in hand. Saints of God, this is for a journey. You're making a journey. For I will pass through the land in that night. And I, God, will execute judgment. Our God, the God of the Lamb, is a God of judgment. Hear what he says here. I provide the Lamb, but I'm also a God of judgment. That night, I'm coming through to judge sinners. I'm going to kill sinners. I'm going to destroy what is false, all the false God. But never you forget, I am the God of the Lamb. People try to separate this, make him the God of the Lamb. There's no judgment in God. Do you realize this would make no sense? If he wasn't a God of judgment, if he wasn't a righteous God, or if he wasn't a holy God. I want you to notice something just as we close here. And it's very hard to close this. I need to do an entire series on Exodus chapter 12. We'll just say it's all on the lamb, the singular lamb, the one lamb, the glorious lamb. But listen, I want, I'm talking about the readiness for the journey. I want you to hear this. Verse 15. Seven days that ye eat unleavened bread. Most commentators talk, you've got two feasts in this chapter, the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Most commentators don't understand this. Some of them say it's only one feast. Others say it's only, it's two feasts. They're totally separate. Others say, no, they're mixed, they overlap. Some say they're the same. They're a bit confused on it. Do you know, these are right in the right place. The Passover and right beside it, unleavened bread. It means something, but it's to do with the journey. It's at the place of the journey. The blood has been shed. Your faith is in it. You're feasting on the lamb. Now you're making the journey. You know what it is? It's unleavened bread. It says, even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. This is what unleavened bread is. For seven days, you go through seven days. You know when this begins? The 14th day of Nisan is Passover. Four days you've had a lamb from the 10th to the 14th. You had a lamb in your house. On the 14th day, the lamb gets slain. Do you know what happens on the 15th of Nisan? Unleavened bread starts. Right, it buffers up against Passover. You don't start unleavened bread until you have a Passover. Once you have Passover, unleavened bread immediately starts. For seven days you have a feast now. Not just Passover. Passover is there. Therefore you immediately have unleavened bread for seven days. What do they do? You've got to go into your homes and clear out all the leaven. They couldn't do this in Egypt. They didn't do it in Egypt. They left that night. They were out by the Red Sea. They're making a journey over these next seven days. But they do it every single year following that they keep Passover in their homes. And for seven days, you know what unleavened bread is? You go into your homes, any leaven. You know what leaven is? Ladies put it in the bread. And uh, if it goes in unnoticed, you put a little bit in and it goes through everything and it leavens the bread. It affects everything. 
It, it corrupts everything. It changes the nature of everything. That's what leaven is. You know what rep leaven represents? It can represent the flesh. It can represent sin. It can re represent false teaching. So leaven is like all of those things, just a little bit of it in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you've got a problem. You won't have unleavened bread anymore. And that's what he's saying here. Listen to what it says in Luke 22, verse 1. And there's Luke speaking. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. They're so connected, you can't separate them. But they're not the same. They're different. But if you have a Passover, you've got to have a feast of unleavened bread. What do you do? You go into your house and go, I want to get rid of every bit of sin. Have you ever seen Christians who like the blood like Passover, but they don't like unleavened bread. Well, brother, you're washed in the blood. Let's start cleaning your house out. Let's start sweeping under your bed. Let's go look for some unleavened or some leaven. Let's begin cleaning things down. You see, leaven is yeast. It works silently, hiddenly, and it spreads its influence quickly. All it needs is a bit of heat and it'll explode. Have you ever seen it in the church? A little bit of leaven and it explodes. It can destroy lives. That's why I'm preaching on these messages these weeks. It seems so simple, elementary, basic, what we all believe. And yet you've got preachers, prophets, pastors, ministry leaders, famous songwriters. All of them are opposing this at this present time. A little bit of leaven will destroy an awful lot of souls. And I'm deeply concerned about it. Instructions for the observance of the Passover are in Exodus 12, verse 1 to 13. This is followed immediately in verse 14 to verse 20 by unleavened bread. Saints of God, here tonight, the bleeding lamb. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, Know ye not that a little leaven, speaking of the church, don't you know this? That a little leaven, a little bit of leaven, leaveneth the whole lump, talking about the church. You want to play with sin, false doctrines, ideologies, practices. You want to be casual about that? One little bit of leaven, undealt with, will affect this entire church, every member all the children. So what does he say? Purge out therefore the old leaven that we the church may be a new lump as ye are unleavened, no leaven in you, for even Christ our Passover. Do you see what I'm reading to you? Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. He puts in the church, in the New Testament, this unleavening, putting out the leaven, searching out the leaven. He puts it right by the Passover lamb in the New Testament church. Do you see that? Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Saints of God, we need to get rid of the false leaven false teaching, 
false practices around penal substitution. The cross of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand it. We've got to believe in the blood. We've got to preach it. We've got to study it. We've got to teach it. Teach it to your children. I was taught this as a little child. I knew all of this as a child. Kids soak it in. The Bible stories, the types, Exodus 12, Genesis 4. I grew up as a child. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I knew all the Bible stories better than you before I was 10 years old. And just go and ask any of these kids and ask little, how old's James? Four. Just ask James any Bible story from the Old Testament. Ask him about Jonah. Ask him about Cain. Ask him about the ark. And you're going to get an entire sermon of details. Maybe a few uh, things you didn't know were actually in the story in the Bible. But we, 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 he's growing, okay? He's growing. But saints of God, I'm going to tell you, we're in an absolute war. And when real revival comes, it's coming to a people who keep the Passover lamb and are walking in the feast of unleavened bread. I want sin out of my heart. I know you have to fight the flesh. I know that you're dealing with sin. I understand that. But as we preach the Passover lamb, saints of God, let's do this together. Let's clean out the unleavened. Let's clean out the leaven, the malice, the attitudes of heart. I don't want anger or bitter or passivity. I don't want these things there. We want the Passover lamb to so impact us that we go, oh God, give me no toleration for sin in my own heart. We are in a serious fight and it's not looking at others. It's here amongst ourselves. Come, would you stand with me? Let's pray together for one another. Lord Jesus, Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus. Thank you for our Passover lamb. Thank you for the blood of the lamb. Thank you for the atonement. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for propitiation. Thank you for substitution. My God, we're not scared by such words. We're tired of the heresy. We're tired of the game players. My God, send us a spiritual revival. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Revive us again. Lord God, give us souls in this city. Give us a harvest, O oh God, of, <coughs> of men and women getting born again by the power and the grace of God. And Father, we pray for a, a revival of holiness in our own lives because of the blood. My God, come and move in our hearts. Lord God, bring the feast of unleavened bread to this church, that we had purge out the leaven, that we had deal with sin, that we had deal with attitudes of heart. We need you, our God. It's because of the blood and the atoning love, Lord God, that we have the courage, Lord God, to clean our these houses in Jesus mighty name